everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. It's me, Dave Wakeman. My guest today is somebody I'm really excited for you to hear me talk to. It's Zoe Skamen from Bodacious, based in London. And we had a great conversation talking about all kinds of cool stuff uh, from innovation and change, theater, marketing, all kinds of stuff. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about Zoe in a moment. But first, I want to tell you, if you are in the States, I think today it is 76 days until Election Day, uh, which is November 3rd, 2020. And I have always been of the mind that you got to vote. Don't boo vote. Uh, no matter who you believe in, who you support, whatever, voting is super, super important. So I have put my support and my efforts over the next couple of months uh behind an organization called IVotedConcerts.com. So IVotedConcerts.com. You can find them on the Twitter. You can check out their website. Um, It's a really cool project that is um, one of the people involved is Lawrence Purrier from Light, who was a former guest of the podcast. Um, The focus is to get people registered and voting. And if you do, take a selfie at your voting uh, polling place or with your blank mail-in ballot and we will invite you to a concert or an event with some great athletes um, journalists concerts all kinds of stuff so check it out ivotedconcerts.com make sure you check out the we will recover project which is something that anar and martin and the activity stream team have put together the entire focus of the program is to make sure that people in the live entertainment uh, sports concerts anything performing arts opera all these things um get back on their feet as quickly as possible um organizations from around the world have taken part through classes and courses and webinars and blog posts and articles insights all kinds of stuff uh check it out it's we will recover dot live again that's we will recover dot live and check out what martin and anar are doing at activitystream.com also make sure you go visit my friends at booking protect the Global Leaders in Refund Protection. Um, some really, really cool stuff going on with the blog. Uh, check that out, bookingprotect.com forward slash blog, uh, where there are some great articles on recovering, relationships, revenue, um, reestablishing trust with your customer base, all kinds of stuff, and they'll continue to be great stuff. Uh, also check out the Booking Protect Instagram page where Kieran is doing some really great stuff, posting all kinds of really great quotes and pictures from artists and performances from all over the world. Um, you know, it helps add a little bit of light to people's day and reminds people what everybody's working towards. So check that out uh, on Instagram. That's Booking Protect. And if you haven't already thought about it, make sure maybe is now is a good time to think about offering your guests refund protection. So check them out, bookingprotect.com. For me, you probably, if you're listening to this thing, you want to check out my Talking Tickets newsletter. It comes out every Friday. It's five stories from the week from around the globe with a little analysis and some action items so that you can take advantage of the trends, the ideas, or the challenges or opportunities that are facing organizations around the world. Uh, You can get that at a new address. This one's easier for me to remember. It is talkingtickets.substack.com that again is talkingtickets.substack.com and you can get the newsletter and if you get it fast you'll even be able to get it for tomorrow so it's great all right check that out back to my guest so i was really excited to talk to zoe skamen from bodacious and you can find her on the twitter at zoe skamen which is z-o-e 
S-C-A-M-A-N. And we talked about um, a lot of really great stuff. She curates a really um, unique and interesting uh, social media feed. And um, that's how I initially found her. But we wanted to talk, I wanted to talk to her about some things I think are really, really important right now, which is um, thinking through our business models, looking at our revenue streams, um, helping clients understand and accept and embrace change because that's incredibly difficult in the best of times. Um, now it might be even more difficult to get people to buy into it. Um, so we talked about, um, you know, how to do market research, how to understand your clients you're working with. We talked about understanding challenges and opportunities. We covered on something that I was like, wow, usually this is my job to say these things, but we talked about how uh, in a lot of cases, that the marketing on Broadway shows, the West End and theater is not very good. Um, Zoe doesn't have as much of a background in sports as I do. So, you, you know, we've spent most of it talking about a lot of, or we spent a lot more of the time talking about theater. And we talked about Dear Evan Hansen. We talked about the success of Hamilton. We talked about um, where she draws her inspiration from, um, we, which is a lot of things in gaming, um, looking for patterns, luxury brands, um, fan, you know, fan bases, uh, how she would take deep dives. Um, you know, she looks for, we talked about how she's looked at look, luxury brands in China and the street rap scene in Mongolia. I mean, it, this is like really, really cool. And one of the things I really, really enjoyed about it is that a lot of my references are often, I use historical things and say, look, these things are still relevant today. And then I'll show you where other people are doing it. But I'll usually take something that I've seen work before and say, well, why aren't we doing this and adding some of the tools we have? And Zoe is actually looking at things that are current and even maybe feel a little futuristic. So we talked about some of the ways that bands like BTS are able to use tools. We talked about the BTS army. We talked about really a lot of stuff. This was a super fun podcast to do. Um, I was thinking about it and um, really like challenging my thinking due to it for, I mean, still am, but I mean, like really, really hard for like 48 hours. Um, most most of the time that doesn't happen where I'm like, going, my God, I got to figure out how to work that into my into my my habits or I've got to figure out how to approach things this way or I got to do something like that. So this is a great conversation with Zoe Scammon. I'm really excited to welcome Zoe Skamen to the Business of Fun podcast. Zoe, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, this. Well, I'm excited to talk to you um, because I find the way that you position things just like really, really interesting. Uh, you have like one of the great Twitter feeds, in my opinion, uh, where you talk about your work, obviously, but you do a really great job of mixing your personal and your social. Um, you, you know, you you kind of just cover a really wide breadth of things and then you you have this really great point of view about uh revenue streams and business models and you do a lot of stuff that focuses on looking to asia as far as creating new opportunities and new ideas in people's business now all of that out of the way because i want people to understand who you are uh, knowing that i go back and forth between london very very regularly do you have a soccer team that you follow I don't. I'm not a huge soccer fan. I am much more of a rugby fan, actually. 
which so might be difficult. For which, no, what's your rugby team? I had no idea. I yeah, should have asked this it. before. No, it's fine. I actually normally support national rugby. So, you know, I love the World Cup, for example. Um, and then more kind of home team, probably more Harlequins because they're just down the road from me. Oh, uh, I think um, you don't be surprised if you get some uh, attention from the Warrington Wolves. They are uh, they're big fans of the work I do, and they'll probably try to sway you soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah, see, so if, if it is, it's all my fault, so I apologize in advance. Um, but now, all kidding aside, I, I wanted to ask you a, 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 probably a lot of questions here, but I want to start out by one um, with something I think you mentioned recently, which is you don't necessarily buy into this idea that you have to be completely wed to just one industry or one way of doing things or just one thing that you do. And from my experience, that's been probably a key thing that I've learned over the years is that it's the amount of different things that I've experienced that have made me valuable to people. How did you figure, A, am I right in stating it that way? And B, how have you come to that opinion that, hey, I need to experience all kinds of different things and work on all kinds of different things to make me valuable? I think I've always had a natural proclivity towards kind of being a magpie um, and gravitating towards things that just kind of look shiny and interesting and a bit different to me. And I've always been you know, one person who has struggled with just focusing on one category or one avenue. Um, And that is reflective in my CV. You know, I've kind of hopped all over the place. I've worked in loads of different countries. I've worked in advertising. I've worked in management consultancy. I went to Ethiopia and worked in international development. Um, And I just kind of keep looking at all these different worlds because I do think that there is a huge amount of overlap. And I also think that you can learn uh, things in certain categories that are then perfect for cross-pollinating and bringing new, fresh thinking into a new category. And if you stick with just one way of doing things and one way of seeing the world and you get stuck in that status quo of this is how we do it in this industry or this is how we do it in this category, it just gets narrower and narrower and you miss out on the kind of technicolor landscape that's out there. Um, and all of the boundaries, I think, are blurring at the moment. So I was kind of accidentally right Um, But it's always been something that's fascinated me. I just always want to dip in and dip out and see what ideas I can take from other places and pull them into new areas. That's that's interesting that you're accidentally right, because I think everywhere I go, there's this tendency to want to box people in and say, oh, well, you can't know how to, you know, sell tickets to a Premier League match because you've only worked on Broadway or anything of the sort. And I found out from my experience that it's not true that there is a definite process involved in, you you know, the focus of Bodacious is strategy. Um, You know, the focus of my business is mostly revenue and marketing, Um, but there's processes involved. Mm -hmm. And so when you're talking to people, right, because a lot of what you do, a lot of what I do, a lot of what's necessary right now really focuses on change. So how do you help people understand that having these these ideas, you know, and looking all over the place for ideas all over the world, all across different industries, um, you know, that these ideas will travel, that they will work, and that it is okay to try something that maybe doesn't fit into the box that you've created? You know, how do you break the box, I guess? I think the first thing is understanding the organization and doing a bit of a, of a 101 on 
how do they work? How do they operate? What are some of the key business challenges they're facing? And really sort of getting your feet under the table and taking the time to know the business and to know the industry. I see so many consultants going into you know brands and businesses and just trying to take a proprietary framework that they've created and shove it on top and assume that it works everywhere as opposed to really taking that time and that energy to get to know the people and the unique aspects of what it is that they do. So that's the first thing, which is, you know, what are their unique problems and then how can you go about solving them? And the second thing is just opening their eyes, because I think a lot of the time when it comes to day to day business, it's all about just making sure that you get through the day. Um, and I think that a lot of businesses, especially in today's context, are running around like headless chickens. They are obviously trying to make sure that they still have a business that's thriving. They're just trying to tick the boxes. They're trying to get home to their families. There's so much going on that they don't necessarily have the time or the headspace to look outside the bubble that they've created for themselves. So a lot of what I do is about bringing the outside in. So I go and scour what's happening on a wider level, you know, globally or in specific regions and across different categories. And I will bring that into the business as a way to inspire them, but also scare them a little bit as well and kind of go, look, this is what's happening in the outside world. These are kind of the things that will come into your industry if they're not already there and they're going to come fast. And you need to start thinking about how you want to prioritize new product development, new service development. Are you set up talent wise to be able to actually move in these kind of areas? How fast can you turn around a new project at the moment? Is it fast enough? So all of that kind of comes together. But I think before you scare the shit out of them, you know, you've got to find a way to really understand the business and understand the unique challenges that they're facing because it's not a one size fits all. So it's marrying those two things together, which I think are really important. No, that's a great answer. I, a, now I have a couple questions that are completely selfish. Uh, so this is going to be awesome. Um, but the thing that you said that really stuck with me is about the frameworks, right? And I know plenty mm. of these consultants who run around and they have a framework. And um, my four steps to success are going to be like the only thing you absolutely need. Um, and I think, you know, you have a background in management consulting. Uh, and, and I think that that's like comes out of that. Um you know, how do you, and I think the framework, I guess the question I'm trying to formulate here on the fly is, you know, knowing that people are comfortable with frameworks, um, how do you help people step away from the framework? Because I feel like the framework, people gravitate towards that because it gives them security. And, mm -hmm. and when we're in an environment like we are now, um, the last thing we really have is security. I mean, I think that's, if we haven't learned this lesson by now, I don't know that we will, is that no one has the right answer. Nobody has even probably has all the right questions at this point. And so looking for some sort of three or four point checklist that's going to solve all my problems is really a rest, a formula for disaster um, or more pain. And so how do you help people get kind of um, a lot more comfortable with that ambiguity? Because the second part of the question is oftentimes when I go in to inspire and scare, uh, people gravitate too much to the scare and they get frozen. I yeah, don't know I if think, I asked that very well. No, no, no. I think that's fine. I think I am. Um, I'm a fan of frameworks in the way that they can sometimes help you to condense an idea and allow that idea once it's already been created to then travel throughout the company in a way that's easy to digest and easy to understand. So that is for me the point of frameworks. I think the 
the aspect of frameworks that I push against is when you use them at the very beginning of a process of change and you essentially go in with, you know, whatever McKinsey or Deloitte or BCG or even ad agencies, you know, have their own processes and frameworks that they have put little TM marks next to as well. And they say, you know, this is going to solve all of your problems. All we need to do is go through this process. You know, it could be a two by two matrix. It could be, you know, a disruption model. Um, you know, it could be, you know, as you said, you know, the four steps for modernized um, commerce or something like that. And they take those and they sell them over and over again to different businesses with different issues. And they assume that that framework's going to work. And people then look at it as a paint by numbers process. And paint by numbers process is never going to get you anywhere. Because again, as I said previously, you've got to get under the skin of the business itself and the people that operate within it and to really figure out what is it that they have in terms of challenges? What is it that they have in terms of opportunities? And what is it that they have in terms of, you know, the operations of what they do um, that's going to put them in good stead or that's actually going to create barriers for them to be able to move forward? And unless you actually bother to take the time and the energy to understand those businesses, any framework you throw at them is going to be useless because it's almost like you're skimming over um, all of the issues that they may have and just saying, don't worry, here's a Band-Aid solution. Um, this will make you feel better because it looks good and it's kind of neat and it's easy to sell, but it won't get to the root of the problem. And that's my issue with frameworks. It's not about the boxes. It's not about the steps. It's about what you put into the boxes. It's about the energy you put into the steps. That's what makes frameworks valuable. But you've got to do the work before you just start chucking stuff everywhere. Yeah, it's interesting because you've done a great job of helping me refresh my own thinking as we've talked here. Um, and I think when you talked about the time and energy at the start to understand what the, op- mm-hmm. what the business looks like, what the challenges and opportunities are, it's, um, it's a challenge like, right. For people who are doing stuff like, I, like we do, which is we're outside of the organization, we go in to help, but it's also a challenge for people inside the organization because it's easy to reflexively respond to the pain. You know, right. All of a sudden, um, our sales are down. We must need sales training. Um, our marketing is not get hitting the metrics we need. We obviously must need a new ad campaign, things like this. And I've always talked about it in a way of it's like you go slow at the start so that you can go fast at the end. Because once you've kind of peeled back to some of the root causes, solving them becomes a lot easier. And, and I think to the point you were making, it becomes, um, exciting because people, you know, I think they can see change pretty, you know, much more realistically from that because then they realize what, Oh my gosh, you know, it's not a sales problem. It's a problem based around our value proposition or we're not targeting the right people or, you know, or something similar along that line. And and is that, does that make sense to you? Is that something you see as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I'm a really big fan of the Toyota Five Whys, which has been in place for probably like two or three decades now, maybe even longer. Um, And it's a super simple framework for asking questions. And all you do is you just ask why five times. And the idea is that you get from a shallow answer or an easy answer into the nub of the problem. So if someone says, for example, we are not reaching enough people, we need more awareness. And then you would ask, why do you need more awareness? And then they might kind of go, well, I think more awareness would lead to more people coming into a sports stadium, for example. And they'll say, why do you need more people to come into a sports stadium? And they'll say, right, well, when we come into a sports stadium, we have the ability to upsell above and beyond the ticket price and we can make more money that way. Okay, why do you need to make more money 
um, from food and beverage, for example, that on top of the ticket price, what's wrong with the ticket price? And you just keep asking those whys until you actually get to the nub of the issue. And if you take the time to actually do that, um, which can actually be, it could be as easy as five whys and you can get it done in one conversation. But a lot of the time I spend quite a lot of time talking to different stakeholders because they'll all have different perspectives. But you can really get down to, OK, actually, your issue is nothing to do with awareness. Your issue is to do with um, ticket pricing potentially being too low and also the fact that that is your only form of revenue. And if that's your only form of revenue, you might want to think about exploring diversified revenue opportunities, which are actually going to bring back way more in the long term in terms of revenue generation than it would just to try and get more people into the stadium to spend more money on hot dogs. Yeah, I mean, we don't know each other very well. I mean, a lot of times when I do the podcast, I know people pretty well. Uh, But the revenues, I mean, that's like sort of my favorite thing to talk about, because I think people undersell how many different ways they can make money. Yes. Um, I mean, I absolutely, um, in a moment of sheer, uh, I would, I'll say it was stupidity. Other people can say it was genius if they want. I stood on the stage one time and I was like, well, here's what I'm going to do. If you give me your business card, I'm going to send you 101 ways that you can turn, um, you can create monetary opportunities from your business. And, and I had to do it because I said I was going to do it on stage in front of like 500 people. So, um, it's interesting, you know, how people get stuck in these ruts around their revenue. Um, you know, how focusing just on revenue, how do you help people see all the different paths to revenue? And then how do you help them understand and manipulate their business model to capture a lot of those opportunities that they have been missing? Because for this audience, that is a lot of people in sports and entertainment and concerts around the world. They often feel like they're very, very limited, right? Like the way this 101 ways thing came out, um, it came because some guy in the audience said, Oh, we're limited to like this, these five or six different things that we can do. And I was like, Oh, I, I think you're wrong. And I think what it shows is how uncreative you're willing to be. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is probably why I scare people. Um, but you know, how do you do, how do you handle that? How do you show people the light? Because Again, I think the only limits to the revenue opportunities is our own creativity. I agree. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about bringing the outside in. So it's looking at what's happening around the world, potentially not even in the category that they're already in, but it could be in, you know, if they're in sports, it could be in the beauty category. It could be in the wider world of entertainment. It could be in luxury fashion. And there can, there can be different emerging models that are starting to be explored and then are starting to gain traction um, in other countries and other categories, as I mentioned, and actually bringing those in and saying, this is what's happening in luxury fashion in China. And this is how they're monetizing live streaming, for example, um, which is adding you know, additional gamified metrics on top of a normal stream of a catwalk show, which they can then turn into revenue in other ways. What if we were then to do that for you, you know, Mr. Sports Club Pump Person, for example? And that's what I start to do. So it's not just bringing in inspiration and leaving it there. I always have a what if statement after each thing that I show to say, you know, if we were to flip this and to apply this to our industry, this is what it potentially could look like. Is this something that we want to explore? Um, And then you can go from there in terms of modeling, in terms of looking at, you know, what the investment would be versus what the timeline would be to bring it to market. And then potentially what it could look like in six months, in 12 months, in terms of onboarding different fandoms, for example, and then generating cash off the back of it. And what value 
are you bringing to sport sports fans that is completely different from anything they've experienced before, which actually could give them a much deeper appreciation and connection to the sport or the team or even just the player that they love. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's great. I, and one of the examples I think that you come back to pretty regularly that is always, it's interesting to me because I'll use um, examples that are more historic in nature, probably too much as a crutch and something that, you know, have, now talking to you, I'm probably going to be a lot more conscious of. But you point to a lot to K-pop and mm-hmm. some of the things that are going on in Asia. And you mentioned it even in your conversation now. What what is it about the way that um, was it BTS? I think is the example you sh- you wrote a really great newsletter that I'm going to link to, but talking about these revenue models. But I think it was BTS mm-hmm. you were talking about. Um, what do you see as some of the key ways that they've? Because I think they've done an unbelievable job of building an audience without you know full stop, but then also turning that audience into a you know a tool for social change, a tool for their own. Um, you know, own business, you know, they've been able to do like really, really interesting things with their audience. Yeah. And what do you see as like some of the keys to their, their success? I think one of the keys to, to their success is that they have built a certain set of values, um, which obviously have then created this fandom off the back of it, which is known as the BTS army. Um, and then they've actually just kind of let it run wild. So the BTS army, don't actually really do a huge amount um, based off the direction of BTS, the band themselves. They're now completely self-sufficient. And there's also different factions of the BTS army. Um, so there are factions, for example, who are LGBTQIA. There are factions who are very big on Black Lives Matter. And what's so fascinating about them is their ability to self-organize and their ability to, you know, to jump on social and on certain platforms and to create change and to create traction very, very quickly. You know, it's in no small part to the fact that they are huge as a fandom globally, but they are also very, very connected um, with behind their love of BTS. But it's not necessarily a top down thing. It's not BTS saying to BTS Army, can you do X, Y, Z? They are, as I said, relatively self-sufficient and off they go. And it's really that emergence of fandoms and the size of fandom communities and the influence and the power that they have, which I've been really interested in over the last so probably two or three years. And I've just kind of watched it emerge, mostly from Asia and China. Um, but it's starting to pop up all over the place at the moment, you know, obviously in the US as well, in the UK. Um, and I think that the, the BTS army for a long time were not taken seriously because people just thought that they were sort of silly young people or silly girls in many ways. But actually, I think what's been proven is that if you give them the tools and they've got an agreed set of values, there's almost this kind of just political or religious or fanatical force that you can create um, and then you just feed it. You just continually feed it with different types of infrastructure, rewards, recognition, um, direction, those kind of things. But a lot of the time, the fandom is just working by itself, which I think is just really fascinating to watch. But previously, the infrastructure hasn't been there for these fandoms to collate and to come together and to make change or to build things. But that's now completely changed. So the technology that's rising up is empowering them on a way that we've never seen before. Now, when you say technology and the ability for the BTS Army to come together and, and sort of self-organize, 
Is this technology that is still making its way to the States or the UK, or is this technology that we have access to here or in the UK that we're just not using effectively? I think it's a mix. So, I mean, the most basic technology is essentially social platforms. So it's social platforms that allow them to um, share a particular idea or a particular movement or initiative that they want to get behind. So an example of what happened on Twitter uh, a couple of months ago was BTS Army deciding that they were going to flood the hashtag White Lives Matter um, on hashtag on Twitter with basically silly images of K-pop or their favorite bands or, you know, themselves dressed up in K-pop stuff. And it was simply to flush out and silence the racists that were rising up on Twitter when the Black Lives Matter movement was starting to really kick off. And they did that out of the goodness of their own heart. And they knew how to take a hashtag and kind of weaponize it and essentially just silence all of those racist voices by taking White Lives Matter and just chucking it on the back of tweets, as I said, that were mentioning their favorite K-pop acts or their favorite K-pop songs. That's one example. The other example is on TikTok. So that was talking about, so someone had the idea that they were going to buy tickets to the Tulsa rally for Trump. And they all decided that they were all going to buy tickets and they were going to register um, for those tickets because they were free and no one was going to turn up. And that's exactly what happened. So, again, it's an idea that is then shared on a social platform. They use hashtags very, very well. They'll then go out to some of the biggest K-pop stan accounts. So a stan account is basically a, a fan run account that has millions of followers that shares updates on their K-pop um, fans and, and all that kind of stuff. And those fan accounts then spread the word to all the people following them. And it's kind of like, I guess it's a kind of like a um, a really hardcore social version of a phone tree. And that's how it starts to spread. You know, phone trees that you get with parents at schools, like if something goes wrong, this mum calls this mum, who then calls those two mums. Yeah. Exactly the same way that they're spreading it, but they're doing it in such a way that they know exactly who to go to. They know exactly how to use the hashtags. And then they go from zero to full on initiative and, and activation within 24 hours. And it's amazing to see. Yeah, no, it's great. And it's um, I'm glad you brought up the Tulsa rally thing, because I was like, I think the the idea that would stick with people is that rally and how the TikTok users bought all those tickets. And it was like a huge, huge success for them. They mm. were able, they completely disrupted it and, um, you know, try to keep the politics out of here. But it was like, I think you could all, I guess if you, I'll, I'll tip my hand. It's very, it was a very amusing to watch and it was very, yeah. <laughs> it was very amusing to watch. Um, so knowing that you have done a lot of work in, um, with, or I don't know if a lot, maybe I'm overstating that, but you've done a lot of work on with theater in the West End. Um, mm -hmm. So you, along with all the other like really cool projects you've, you've worked on, because, you know, doing my research before the podcast, um, I was like, I should have put on some Adidas um, or, you know, I should have done all kinds of things here um, to prepare. Um, looking at the, the world of theater and entertainment now, you know, what are some ideas and some approaches or just, just some thinking that we can give people to help them sort of frame the challenge ahead, right? Looking at the world as it is, um, and, you know, where can we put point people's attention to one or two things that are going to help get them moving back in a positive direction again? Because, you know, if any industry has been hit hard, it's the live events industry has probably been hit the hardest during the pandemic because um, a Champions League match in, in Italy was 
target as a super spreader event for the pandemic. Uh, we've seen that like large crowds are bad news. Um, I think that, you know, there's a financial thing, there's a business thing, and then there's a psychological thing that's going to be going on when live events come back. And, you know, I, I want to help people have a, like sort of a po- little bit of positive momentum out of all these conversations so that they can kind of start putting their businesses back together. It's a big question. Well, um, the world of only the big questions the, for you. <laughs> the, the world of entertainment and the world of theater are two very different beasts. Um, the world of entertainment, you know, that could involve gaming, that could involve film, that could involve TV series. So I'll park that for a second and I'll just focus on the theater side of things. Um, you know, I think historically theater has been a challenge to market. And the reason I say that is because it's one of the most dynamic, entertaining, incredible in-person experiences that you can have. But my experience with how it was marketed, so be it Broadway, be it West End in London, for example, it was marketed in such a kind of flat, ticket-focused, poster-focused way that none of that energy and that excitement was actually coming to the fore. And I think, you know, over a period of time, the ticket prices have obviously increased because it costs so much more to put on a show these days. And you need to make sure that you've got serious capacity in a venue to be able to break even on a regular basis. Um, so those ticket prices then become a bit of a barrier for younger people. And at the same time with that younger audience, you're also not energizing them and getting their enthusiasm up because you're marketing essentially, you know, static images on Instagram and there's no pull. Right. There's no reason for me to go and visit. There's no way for me to get a taster because especially when it comes to certain Broadway and West End directors, they are terrified about giving away anything to do with the show because then they're worried that people won't come. But that's a complete farce. You need to flip it. We still need to build that enthusiasm, you know, in the same way that a movie will talk about, you know, a couple of different trailers. They might have behind the scenes content. They might make some ancillary content, which is not to do with the actual film itself, but it might help to kind of build a world or a context or a, you know, a springboard for that story, um, which has been done quite a few times. For example, when I worked with Ridley Scott, um, they did it for Blade Runner. They did it for, um, the film with Matt Damon um, when he's going to the moon, for example, there's there's the Martian. There's so many different ways for you to then kind of build that enthusiasm and people then obviously will want to go and see it or they'll want to go and, and buy tickets. And that was one of the biggest barriers that I found working in theatre was just that mindset was so fixed of I can't give too much away. I don't want to create ancillary content. The way that, um, you know, shows are created, I don't want anyone to go to rehearsals because it's not perfect and therefore I don't want to share imperfect content. So the whole process was so fixed that trying to wedge yourself in there and kind of get them to understand that that drum roll is necessary, especially for a younger audience, especially when it comes to social, it was really hard. I think we got there in the end um, and I think we changed quite a lot in terms of actually how we marketed things. But it was it was a massive challenge. It was a very kind of computer says, no, this is just the way it is. This is the way we market and we'll we'll die on this hill, um, as opposed to really understanding that, you know, the wider world of entertainment with television series and with movies and all of that kind of stuff was moving at a rapid, rapid pace and adopting all of these new ways of working. But theatre, for some reason, just dug their heels in and didn't want to shift. Oh, yeah. No, uh, usually when somebody says something um as pointed as you did, which you're absolutely accurate about the marketing not being very dynamic. I usually say it to give everybody cover. Uh, so, but I agree a hundred percent. 
it's um, especially if you go to Broadway. I think the mm-hmm. advertising in London is and on the West End is a little bit better because it's just always like they can't. It's like they're paralyzed to do anything if it isn't built around a review in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's I'm like, oh my God, you have these great, great these experiences, right? It, it, people are spending way more money on experiences than ever before, and yet your marketing doesn't ever reflect how incredible the experience of going to a live theater is. And, and the same thing, um, cover, you know, if, if you're not aware, happens in sports. It's, it's like the most anodyne, just least impactful advertising and marketing that you could imagine. And as you were giving your answer before, I was thinking about the answer you gave about BTS and the BTS Army, and I was thinking about Dear Evan Hansen and Hamilton. And yeah. I feel like those two were, have been successful for the same reason that we're seeing the impact of the BTS army because they either, and I don't know if it's even a conscious decision, didn't allow their shows to get stuck into that sort of um, too prepackaged, too formulated approach to marketing and selling the shows. Am am I right or am I off base on that? No, I think you're entirely right. And I actually think I've, I've used both of those examples along with some newer ones recently to try and push um, the theatre marketing departments in that direction. So I believe it was Dear Evan Hansen who actually released a couple of tracks or maybe it was a single track that you could access after you bought your ticket. So you could actually start to hear some of the music that you might hear on the sh- at the show itself. And again, that was quite a small move that they made, but it was a really, really big difference. Hamilton, I mean, Hamilton just kind of blew it out the water. One of the things that they tended to do was the kind of ham it up sessions, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. But when people were queuing outside the theatre, waiting to go in, some of the cast members would come outside and they would sing and they would dance and they would take selfies with people. And they did it deliberately because that allowed them to then capture social content for their own channels to show that they were accessible, that they could have fun, that it was actually a much bigger experience for people just other than just the show. And it was a way for them to market what they were up to and what they were doing. And it also meant that fan engagement was so much higher. Um, obviously, we, was, we saw all of the celebrity selfies that Lin-Manuel Miranda was taking. So be it Kanye or a bunch of others as well. And that was starting to drive hype. So the social media marketing machine around Hamilton was just absolutely incredible. And I think one of the one of the more successful ones recently that I've seen is The Queens of Six. So The Queens of Six is a musical about the six wives of Henry VIII. And they decided to release some of their tracks onto TikTok. And essentially, it's just gone completely nuts. So they did this last year. And the music's quite kind of poppy. It's quite feminist. And people just started making their own kind of musical videos to some of the uh, the songs that you would hear on the Broadway stage show. And off it went. And that was a fantastic way for them to market. And Beetlejuice has done the same. So some of the songs from Beetlejuice have then been put onto TikTok with certain people or influencers then kind of doing challenges or creating their own videos using that music. And again, just that release of content, that release of context and that release of kind of music, which previously the majority of directors would have just fainted at the idea of giving anything away because they want to keep it entirely secret until you actually you know have a bums on seats moment but that is not the way to build enthusiasm and excitement and then to drive ticket sales so these examples as you mentioned you know Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, The Queens of Six and Beetlejuice are completely throwing all of the rules out of the window and saying we're going to adopt this new way of doing things and for them it's been a massive success. No, it, it, and I think the um, you're absolutely correct because I don't think it, it's 
you talked about pricing before and I talk about pricing a lot. And I think that it's just misguided to think that you're asking somebody to, you know, commit 150 pounds, let's say to a, um, you know, a prime seat for a theater show for a for a musical and then expect that that without any sort of thing except for maybe a friend you know they know they want to go to the west end that they're going to buy it from your show and mm. so giving people little bits of pieces even if they're not perfect because i think number one this podcast is a great example for anybody listening because i have intentionally not made overproduced the thing because i want to be people to see that like you just go with the idea people are very forgiving and they almost even enjoy it more because it feels authentic to them it feels real um you know but you have to build some sort of momentum for people right you want to give them a little teaser like and you know it's the same as any kind of content marketing strategy i guess it is a content marketing strategy where it's like the big thing is your your show, but there's all these different ways to engage and monetize and move people along. So it dri always drives them towards the show, right? Because you can mm -hmm. never take away and steal from that live experience, but you can do all kinds of great things that will tease that experience, that will drive people towards it. And then I think when you get them there, because another example of this really being really great, I've even seen this show four or five times, um, and I don't go to see anything more than once most times. Wicked. Wicked has created kind of an, um, I don't want to say cult because I think that gives it a, a, a bad connotation. They've built an, a community around the show and people will go see it over and over and over again. You know, the daughters will take their mothers, mothers will take their daughters and granddaughters because it's been around long enough that there's generations of people that can experience. And I think that nothing takes away from that live experience, but you have to be willing to give people things to hook on to to keep that enthusiasm there. Absolutely. And I think it, it's such a big lesson from Hollywood at the moment and also Netflix. It's about giving people the stories and the facts and the kind of getting, allowing them to sort of delve into things and talk about fan theories and fan fiction. And that kind of stuff is rampant on Twitter, on Reddit, you know, all of those type of communities. And then it actually just heightens the enthusiasm and the need to actually go and see something. And it turns it into a much bigger experience than just one night out. And that's what the theatre world, I think, really needs to learn. And it's also, you know, one of the big things that I was looking at when I was working on a particular show on Broadway, which was a huge one, um, was thinking about what is the next step after the show? Where do they go after that? Do you just kind of leave them hanging and they've seen the show and that's it? Or is there a way of pulling them into further narratives and further content? And is that a way to monetize a fandom as well, which could be really interesting? Yeah. So an example, an example of that, um, which hasn't necessarily come to theatre yet, but could, is Ava DuVernay. So Ava DuVernay is obviously responsible for 13th, which is an incredible Netflix documentary, and also When They See Us. And one of the big things that she's always asked when people have seen her content and her shows is what can I do next or how can I further educate myself? And so she's actually set up um, an online learning portal with resources that are all attached to the things that she touches on in her documentaries or in her fictional work as well, which is incredible. So it allows people to then actually go and see the content or the show and then move on to a next step, which pulls them in even deeper. And I'm not necessarily saying that there might be shows that, for example, have anything to do with Black Lives Matter on Broadway, although I know that one of the founders of The Roots is working on adapting something for Broadway, which is in that realm at the moment, based on a 1920s book around race, which could be really interesting. But it's just looking at where do you go next um, and how do you kind of pull them in and then actually you know, potentially get them coming back. 
or maybe moving them on to a next step. There's got to be a further thing that, that can be monetized after that. It could even just be the album, but there's got to be ways to then extend that experience as well as doing the drum roll. Yeah, no, I, I mean, again, this is, um, I think maybe to you or me, it might seem kind of obvious this, you know, it's a loop and you want to, mm. and really it's about lifetime customer value. But again, like sports, concerts, everything, a lot of people don't do a very good job of extending their relationship with the people, right? It's like one, an example I use, again, I'm date, I'll date myself again here because I'll always point to the Pearl Jam and Pearl Jam fan club, which they do a great job of the entire life cycle of people. But one of the way, great ways that they do to turn people around and keep them in that mindset of like, oh my God, I went to the Pearl Jam concert. It was amazing. Is they give you the option of buying the bootleg of their, of their show. And the same way you talked about after the show, like, Hey, maybe somebody didn't get a chance to buy the soundtrack here. Oh my God. Well, here's a digital download. It's only $5 because like, you know, relive your moment or, you know, mm. and, and some clips and stuff. I mean, it's just, there's so many ways to like keep people engaged in, you know, their fandom, you know, the awesome experience that they've been provided. Um, all, you know, it's just, you know, there's just so, it's so many, so many exciting things. Um, you know, and, and it's really like great to talk to you about this stuff because you bring like such an awesome um, perspective to these things. That I think is you know different than mine, which I appreciate because I've learned so much from you. Um, and before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about your influences because I mentioned at the start about uh, how big of a fan of your Twitter feed I am and like the way you curate. Um, the, you know, you walk a really great line between your personal and your professional life. Um, you curate some really really great stuff. Um, I wish I did as good a job as you do. Um, I'm a little bit more. We'll definitely share too much about my favorite sports teams from time to time, but I think that's totally fine for me. Um, you know, who are some of the like places and people and things that you um, are influenced by, and how do you find so much of the so many of the ideas and how, that you come up with and share? Because it, it, I think if people don't follow you already, they're really missing out because it, you know you you come up with and find some of the most fascinating things to share. Thank you. I think curation has always been something that I love uh, and I read widely. And I think that for me, I've always got a number of different who I would call kind of cultural pioneers that I follow in different spaces. And it could be pioneers in the venture capital world in Silicon Valley who are investing in the next stage of infrastructure to be able to unlock fandoms, for example. Um, it could be some big influences in China or Southeast Asia who are working within luxury fashion, or it could be people who are studying subcultures. You know, I did a deep dive recently reading about the rap scene in Mongolia. But those kind of things I just find really fascinating because, again, you, you kind of unlock what's going on around the world and you see patterns in that way. So if you're looking at what's happening in luxury fashion, um, in China, but you're also looking at what's happening in terms of streetwear culture in Mongolia. Um, and then you're also looking at what's happening to the next stage of streetwear culture in terms of where Virgil Abloh is going in Europe and the US, for example. You can start to see little patterns emerging that then start to connect the dots in your mind. And then you can actually form judgments on where things might go next um, in terms of you know globalized culture or in terms of pockets of interesting things that you can go to. So it's almost like following breadcrumbs, I guess, and they lead you into really interesting spaces. But I'm always plugged into fashion, to art, to music, to television entertainment, especially into gaming at the moment. 
And then also just looking at that interaction between artist or creator and then their fan community, because I really do think that's going to be the currency of the next 20 or 30 years. And why is gaming so fascinating to you? I think gaming is going to be where everything goes in terms of entertainment next. And the reason I say that is because I can't I can't overstate the importance of gaming engines and how they're going to change the landscape as we know it forever. And a lot of people are not reading about gaming engines yet. And when I talk about gaming engines, I mean Epic's Unreal Engine. Um, and they announced version five is going to be coming out next year. Unity have also got their own gaming engine. And it's just going to unlock a huge amount of change for the way that we create and consume entertainment content. So obviously it means that there's going to be more and more ability for developers to create incredible looking games because they've built this infrastructure to stop them having to go through the pain of recreating things over and over again. So that's one thing for gaming. The next thing, though, is looking at um, the impact on Hollywood. So The Mandalorian was actually filmed in Epic's Unreal Engine. So the whole thing was done in the game engine. Um, you know, Unity was the, all of the Lion King, for example, for Disney. So they did all of the work on that. And that's starting to come to the fore even more so. We've got virtual influencers who are being created in these gaming engines. So Lil Michaela, for example, is huge. So she's turning into a fashion star and a model as well as a pop artist. And she's not real. Um, and yet she's got a gigantic following on Instagram. And that idea of virtual influences is also rising. And then, of course, you've got this idea of the metaverse. Um, Fortnite is a very early version of what that could mean, which essentially means that we can all jump into a shared virtual space and we can live in it and we can do business in it. And, you know, Animal Crossing was a huge example of this. Um, when it came to Nintendo's version of it. And it's essentially people going into Animal Crossing as their animal avatars. And each day they were just gardening or they were decorating their homes, just menial tasks, but in the virtual world. And I think that that is going to start to mix in terms of what the Fortnites are doing, in terms of, you know, open multiplayer worlds. And it also means that you can watch movies in those virtual worlds. So, for example, Christopher Nolan, in the lead up to releasing Tenant, which he still hasn't done yet, decided to showcase Inception inside Fortnite. So you could log into Fortnite as your avatar, go and basically go to a virtual cinema and you could watch Christopher Nolan's film. Or there are music artists that are starting to create experiences in those worlds. So similar to Travis Scott with Astro World in Fortnite, for example, Minecraft are getting into it. So I really think that that is going to be the forefront of where everything shifts to. And I also think it's going to start happening for, for sports teams as well when it comes to virtual um, plug and play versions of the game. So you could pop on an Oculus Rift headset in the comfort of your own home and suddenly you're sitting courtside to watch an NBA game. And you can also watch it from different angles. You can see the biometrics of the players. You can start to see you know, some of the patterns that are emerging in gameplay. You just wouldn't get that if you were to watch it on Fox Sports, for example. So, again, all of that's going to be powered by the infrastructure of these gaming engines, which I really think people need to be paying more attention to. So it's not actually really even about the game. It's about the game, the, the, the infrastructure the and the infrastructure, yeah. because I think there's a big challenge. I didn't even know we were going to talk about this, um, but there's like big everybody talks about esports, esports, esports all the time. And it's like it stays really, really surface level. And the way you just explained it. Um, I mean, this this obviously makes a lot more sense to me. Like, this seems like way, way more likely that I would be involved in this. And it makes me think about yes. um, how this is like just 
another level to like when I was a kid and computers were first becoming um, as big of a deal was the um, the Sims. And, but this takes like the Sims and that idea to you know to like ten levels beyond what it is. And so then that leaves me with like I probably shouldn't be like going to my son. Why are you playing all that Fortnite all the time? Because he's really ahead of the curve here. So I got to um, be a little more gentle on him. Um, Absolutely. And I, I, I would actually say, you know, for especially for younger people, if you want to learn one skill moving forward, learn how to use a gaming engine, because that is how the world is going to spin in the next decade or so. And if you know how to use a gaming engine, then you're set, you know, for, for working in this world. And it could also just be that, you know, meetings happen in gaming and, you know, in gaming environments. And that is actually happening. So a lot of people got sick of Zoom, for example, um, when it came to having meetings. And so some businesses actually started having meetings inside Red Dead Redemption, which is a game by, um, I've completely forgotten the name of the, the company, Riot Games, I think. Um, and, you know, they were looking at, sitting around a campfire playing cowboys and Indians and actually having a normal business meeting but it was so much more interesting because one of them could get shot at any moment or get bitten by a snake and die and have to regenerate other people have been having you know meetings in Grand Theft Auto so you know I've read a couple of things about two VCs basically going on you know random drives for example um, around New York and getting into gunfights and burglarizing shops and that kind of stuff while actually discussing their deals so it is a completely different form of engagement and connection and fun, to be honest, that's starting to come to the fore. And I think that we have pigeonholed gamers as, you know, predominantly pale young boys that sit in their mother's basements and, you know, eat Doritos and drink Mountain Dew. But that is just not the case. The demographics are shifting massively. And, you know, it's becoming a world where you can do anything and be anyone and get anything done. No, it, it's awesome. And um I mean, this is like, it's been to me like such a great, um, opportunity and experience talking to you. Um, I, I feel like I go on forever with you here. Um, <laughs> but where should I, and I was, I actually, let me pull this back because I was going to make a Gary V joke because we were talking about it before that, um, that, that you just posted this Gary V article. And I was telling you that there's another podcast coming out for, with a friend of mine where I trash Gary V. Um, but I think that that would just be detracting from you because we don't want to infiltrate our beautiful conversation with a bunch of nonsense, which is what he would give you. But where can I point people to you so they can find that article that you posted, which I thought was really interesting? Um, I think probably my Twitter is the easiest one. And then also my Substack as well. Um, where I just write very infrequently whenever the mood strikes me. I've already, I've got about eight or nine half finished articles that I just keep procrastinating on and then never actually doing anything about, which I, I definitely need to give myself a kick up the ass on that stuff, um, and see where we get to. But yeah, I think probably my Twitter is, is the best one. Um, and I just, I, I just share whatever I think is interesting at any point in time. And I think that sometimes what I share might seem a bit abstract to people. So for example, my obsession with gaming engines, um, but the stuff that I'm sharing, I'm sharing because I think it's really important. And I think it's stuff that we need to be paying attention to. And the earlier we can wrap our heads around this kind of thing, the more ahead of the game we can get when it comes to product offerings, service offerings, and catering to this ever rising power and influence of fandoms as well, be that theater, be that te television, be that sports. It's a really um, rapidly growing space, which at the moment might feel quite small and nascent, but it's going to explode because of the infrastructure in the next two or three years. No, it's awesome. And thank you so much for doing this. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. 
What did you think of my conversation with Zoe? Let me know. You can send me an email. It is my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. Make sure you follow me on the social media or you connect with me. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at David Wakeman. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website. It's DaveWakeman.com where you can find out my what I'm up to. You can find my blog. All kinds of great stuff going on there. Uh, make sure you check out my friends and partners, um, the We Will Recover Project, which is at WeWillRecover.live. Um, me and probably about 20 other organizations and people from around the world have come together to help offer you insights, ideas, classes, courses, checklists, all kinds of stuff to help you and your organization recover from the pandemic. So check that out at WeWillRecover.live. It's a project put together by my good friends Anar and Martin from ActivityStream who are working really, really hard on some really cool projects around marketing and AI that may be useful to you now. So check them out at activitystream.com. Make sure you go and visit my friends Booking Protect at www.bookingprotect.com. Uh, there's some great stuff on the blog where talking about relationship building, uh, recovery from the pandemic, uh, revenue streams, uh, reestablishing relationships, uh, building new relationships. And there's a whole bunch of more cool stuff coming up. So make sure you check out the blog. It's bookingprotect.com forward slash blog. And make sure you check out what uh, Kieran is doing on the Instagram. Uh, he has been doing a great job of curating photos, quotes, all kinds of stuff from the live entertainment industry to kind of keep your feed fresh and keep you focused on some of the cool things um, that happen when we can get people back together, which eventually we will be able to get people back together. So it'll be great. So check it out. Um, Booking Protect on Instagram. If you've gotten this far on the podcast, I think you might like my Talking Tickets newsletter, which is my opportunity each Friday to look at the world of tickets and live entertainment, sports, concerts, theater, um, opera, all that stuff from around the world, give you a quick analysis and some action items. You can sign up for the email. It's free. It's at talkingtickets.substack.com. Again, that's talkingtickets.substack.com. And finally, as I've always been saying, I didn't say it in the introduction to this one because in the middle... Uh, my dog was barking, um, my wife was yelling, uh, my son was yelling, everybody was talking, uh, my neighbors were like, oh, we got a new HVAC, it's so great, all these crazy things, but I know this pandemic has been difficult for people, and I don't want you to go through it alone, so if you need to talk to somebody, you want me to try to crack some jokes that'll help you feel better, um, you need somebody just to bounce ideas off of, anything you need send me an email. It's daviddavewakeman.com. Let me know how I can be, you know, either helpful, useful, or just be someone you can talk to. Um, you know, I, I, because of the podcast and all the things I do, I've been so fortunate and it would seem really like I was a jerk if I didn't offer, you know, to be there for you when the times are not as easy. So let me know if anybody wants to talk or chat. I'm on the WhatsApp. I'm on, you can text me, you know, you can get me however you want to. All right. So that's hit me up, Dave, DaveWakeman.com. And as always, thank you so much for being here. Um, it's so great to have the ability to reach all of you each week um, or multiple times a week with the podcast. So thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to all of you soon. Okay. Take care.